Good morning and welcome to Backstory with me, Noreen Mayer. I hope you're ready for this week's guest who is known for his enthusiasm, warmness and dedication to Hong Kong. Greg Dieb, diplomat turned general manager of the prestigious Crown Wine Cellars, shares his journey of growing up in South Africa during apartheid, a time where people of different races could not mix together. He also shares with us his search for his own identity and how he finally feels at home in Hong Kong. Here is Greg's backstory. Born and raised in South Africa, um, I had a, a grandfather from France, a grandmother from Kent in England, and on my mum's side, Swiss and German. Uh, they all arrived between 1888 and I think around about 1918, 1920. Uh, we had one generation in South Africa, and um, then by the time I was 22, 23, I upped and left, came to China on my father's recommendation of all things. And um, arrived uh, 1992 and just never, ever left. Loved China to pieces and eventually, as you know, became Chinese. Yeah, of course. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that, uh, that that transition later on as well. What did your family do? What, what did your parents do? So um, I'm really one of those strange European um, South African kids because people have the impression that all white South Africans were really wealthy. Um, in my situation, it wasn't true. My dad was a farmer and he had to have a second job because the farm didn't pay that well. Uh, my mom had to work as well. We, we really were not well off. Uh, I, I often, when I speak to students, I try and explain to them, we had no electricity. We had no running water until I was about seven or eight years old. Um, it was quite an amazing uh, lifestyle. And we lived on this, this small farm, probably about 30 kilometers outside of the, the, the small town that we lived in. And great experience. Uh, it was really beautiful. Uh, because both my parents worked, my grandma, my British grandma, uh, brought me up. And she happened to be a very, very strong British lady. So she always told us that we're not from South Africa. We were just born there. And rightfully or wrongfully, you know, it's it sort of stuck in my head. And uh, I loved loved South Africa, but I never, never really felt that it was uh, a place that I was from. And that's a critical issue because... Uh, to me, nationality is something very precious. It's very special. And uh, as we've discussed many times, I think, late in the evening, um, it's something that I think people should take quite seriously. And if we do, uh, I do believe a lot of the problems in the world would be resolved right now. Yeah. So growing up in South Africa, you didn't quite feel like you fit in? Would you say that? Yeah, South Africa is a is a wonderfully interesting place. It um, seems so diverse. It's one of the most geographically beautiful places I've ever seen in my life before. Um, but as far as the people go, they, they really are pretty mixed up. Mm-hmm. Um, you find the the level of emotion and as a result, the level of aggression is, is quite high. And I think that's borne out by the crime statistics and everything else that people see. But it's also ironically a very intolerant place. And, um, you know, the, the, the levels of racism, of course, mm. through apartheid were quite extreme. But the levels of reverse racism that, that exist in Africa are quite extreme as well. And what I found was uh, one, one story I, I, I like to tell people is uh, after I had finished my, my stint in the, the foreign service, I returned home for one last time 
and uh, held a, a fantastic dinner for all of my colleagues. Now, I joined the ANC in 1988 already, so I was pretty left-wing, um, you know, quite quite a socialist, English socialist kid. And, um, and during this dinner, I invited a lot of my uh, former student colleagues, former diplomatic colleagues and what have you, uh, from all different races, colors, creeds and what have you. And I'll never forget my last toast was, uh, you know, to always being South African and always loving this place. And one of the people stepped up and said, uh, love what you've done, absolutely respect you, you're a fantastic guy, but you know you're not South African. And I looked and I thought the person was joking at first. And I said, hang on, what, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, you're white, you can't be African. And you know that we respect what you've done, but you can never, ever intrinsically be who we are. And I looked around the table and at that point, I actually went and said, I'd like every single person to, with seriousness, come up and tell me what they think. And um, one by one, they went through and they said, look, if we didn't like you, we wouldn't be honest with you. But by virtue of being honest, no, you're not, you're not South African. You can never be from here. How did you feel? And, well, actually... It was a very strange feeling because exactly what I told you earlier, my grandmum had told me precisely that. And I think this is something about being an English South African or colonial South African as opposed to the Afrikaners, perhaps, who arrived, you know, sometimes four, five hundred years in the past, depending on your family. So they really have an intrinsic right and feeling uh, to the country. But I think I got home and spoke to my wife. And my wife said, look, there's no reason to be angry because intrinsically this is actually what you feel, right? And I looked at it and I thought, well, actually, they are right. So, you know, it's it's uh, you can go and try and fight against everybody and you take this moral crusade, but it wasn't the right crusade. Yeah. So I walked away with a smile on my face. I, I've always put South Africa as, uh, I always call it my VHS video cassette in the wall. And um, when I feel nostalgic, I pull the VHS cassette out, pop it into the TV, and I re reminisce and remember. And I do it with very fond memories. But um, when I pull the cassette out again, well, that's the end of it. You know, I have no long yearnings. And that's a good place to be in. You know, yeah. no, no, no sort of yearnings or anger. I'm really glad your grandma, wise grandma, she prepped you for this. <laughs> she absolutely <laughs> did, yes. Again, it ties in with this whole issue of your views on nationality. Um, I think if more people were really honest with themselves, um, you, you'd probably avoid a lot of aggression and violence. I mean, I could have left South Africa and had this really powerful, sad story, you know, how I got kicked out of my own country and what have you. But actually, just be true to yourself. I love China more than I love South Africa or ever did. And, you know, this is my home. I've lived here for longer than I ever have in South Africa. And um, the moment I arrived in China, I, I don't know whether it's feng shui, energy, whatever you want to call it, but you do get the sense of your energy is better blended in to the location you're in. And this is my place. My kids are happy here. I feel intrinsically happy here. And it's mostly when you get off that aeroplane and you land and you suddenly your shoulders go down, you can sigh a breath, a breath of relief, and you know, I'm home.
this yeah. is brilliant. And that's what I just love about China. I was going to say exactly that. You, you know, you just land in a place and you feel like, oh, this is the place I'm meant to be. Sadly for, for me, well, I don't know if it's sadly, but it was Japan. And I told my oh, grandmother brilliant. and she's been through the Japanese war. She was like, are you serious? <laughs> How can you feel Japan is your home <laughs> after everything that, you know, you, me and my, and your grandpa have been through? No, but again, I, I think this is where people get a place um, mixed up. Um, to the point where it's the place that you love and it's aspects of the culture and the people that you love. But to say that perhaps the political party that's in power at that time or the dominant individual that's running the country at that time and you define it, whether it be World War II and what was going on then or whether it be the current situation, it's not the right way to look at a country. Exactly. So, hey, if your heart's there, I think that's awesome. Marina. Actually, it's, it just so happened that my wallet was there just, just for that one week only. But, but after that, I, home is, is Hong Kong as well. <laughs> <laughs> did you enjoy school? Let's go back to your childhood, Greg. Did you enjoy school? Did you do well in school? Um, interestingly, you know, I, I don't. I never know how to answer that question. I had a great time at school. I was always. Um, uh, we, we had a very, very traditional, strict school. We still had the old um, bashes, you know, the British bashes that we wore. Um, it was very hierarchical, incredibly tough. Where they still had caning. And I, I'll never forget, I had the record in Standard 7, which is when you're about 14. And I had been caned 39 times in the first two terms only. What? So, I mean, I was incredibly naughty, but never evil naughty, just naughty, naughty. And that got me into so much trouble. So you must have gone to a really strict school. It was incredibly strict. And, I, you know, it was an all-boys all school first. Was it all. a mixed-race school? No, no. In those days, um, everything was, was white, black, yeah. Indian, what have you. And people actually lived in different sections of the city. The schools were located in those sections. But even more bizarre, the English and the Afrikaners were separated. Even though both are white. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll never, ever forget. There was, um, when we came home on the buses, for example, uh, all the English kids sat at the back of the bus and the Afrikaner kids who were traditionally more conservative and, you know, upright, they sat in the front of the bus. And, of course, we would be making noises and joking and they would be so controlled that they would turn around and tell us, you, you can't make these noises on the bus. And, of course, every time it turned into a punch-up. So I think at least once a week, the kids would choose a particular bus stop. You'd all get off. And, of course, all the English kids would beat the, the, the Afrikaner kids and the Afrikaner kids would beat the English kids. So people often ask me, you know, how was the racism? How was the violence between races? I can tell you honestly, for the first 18 years of my life till I got to university, which was totally multiracial, I never had any clashes with any African kids or Indian kids at all. The only clashes I had was with the Afrikaner kids. And we hated them. Absolutely hated them. So totally different cultures. That's and so interesting and weird at the same time. For, it is. Yeah. To, to look back on it, can I you imagine not, not interacting with somebody else because of their race? Yeah, it's totally, totally bizarre. And of course, as you say again, uh, having somebody from exactly the same race as you, but having your absolute dislike and disdain launched at another European person and no negative feelings at all. Well, of course, growing up on a farm as well, um, all of my really, really close friends until I was about seven or eight were the other little African kids on the farm. 
So uh, my brother was too old. My sister was too old. So I never had a relationship with them. And being stuck out in the boondocks, um, your only friends were, were the kids you hung around on, yeah. on the farm. So, uh, of course, that's how I learned how to speak in the ballet as well. So it was a very, very amusing time, very colorful time. And I think more akin to the books that you read about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, rather than to my actual lifeline, you know, well, now actually it is getting close to 40 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> was it difficult to, to, to get into the civil service and become a diplomat then, Greg? Yeah, the, the, the glorified civil servant, <laughs> yes. No, it was. Um, in, in those days, especially coming from where I did, um, the, the foreign service at that time was looking desperately to get people of color into the foreign service and nobody would join. So the next best thing was to find an English socialist. So I was the first person, literally the first person from my little socialist university in Peter Maritzburg that ever got into the foreign service. And in those days, you would have to go up for three days of psychometric testing and what have you. It was totally bizarre. All the movies you see with the, the, the mirrored glass and the whole panel of people behind giving people different, you know, tests and, and watching their, their reactions and how they work with other people. It was totally like that. We got woken up at 8 every morning and we did these damn tests until 6 or 7 every night. And interesting, the one thing that always stuck in my mind was my general knowledge. You asked how I did at school. Well, I always just got by in the A class, um, but I was always at the bottom of the A class. So I, I think I, I fooled a lot of people a lot of the time. And I was always a, a you know, study the night before person. Genuinely, I, I never did weeks and weeks. So of you're research. a smart person. No, no, yes. no, no. A survivor, perhaps, perhaps a lazy survivor. So, but I always got through. Um, and every exam, I, my, I loved my dad for this. We'd sit the night before and I'd buy a huge packet of sweets and just load them up and then I would make a flask of the strongest coffee you can imagine. And I literally crammed. I would start studying only at about 10 at night. I'd work until 5 in the morning and then literally get an hour's sleep and then go straight into the exam while everything was in my short-term memory. Wow. And I would just write lots of notes, first of all. So I'd look at the, the entire sort of questionnaire and just put marker notes everywhere and then start to do the paper. And it worked for me. But when you got to the Foreign Service and you had three days of these tests where they were asking about what is the official currency in Argentina, who is the president of Pakistan, and all of these things, I had no bloody idea at all. So I had to wing it. And, you know, I, I would make little quips. I would answer things. I'd, I'd look at the person very strongly, eye-to-eye -eye contact. And lo and behold, out of 1,376, I think, in my – only three of us got in, in my intake – and I, I literally, with, with the same shock that you, <laughs> you, you've just had on your face. I'm in awe. Well, no, no, no. Shock. It's, shock. Yeah. Less awe, but lots of shock. So I, I, I said to the, the person, in my innocence, I said, how the hell did I get in here? And he said, look, oh, didn't you realize it's not what you do know. It's how you answer the questions to what you don't know. That's what we were looking for. Because he said, we can train anybody to be, you know, a, a recorder and just learn facts and churn it out. But you'll never know everything. So we're trying to see what will happen that one moment when you don't know. And he said, in your particular case, you just seem to have this really, really well down. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so it was very, very amusing. I mean, by, by doing what I did and actually taking the back door, that's how I think I got into the foreign service. So, but once they had me, Noreen, they didn't know what the hell to do with me. So I think all of the plum jobs like New York and Genève and what have you, they realized, hang on, we're definitely not going to send an English socialist-orientated guy to represent apartheid South Africa to New York. It just – it's not going to happen. So after – literally, you have to do these follow-on training courses. And again, I, I was never ever top of the class, but I always came in as number three or number four, which was – put you in that really, really rarefied little top 5% of, yeah. of, your, of your intake. So they didn't know what to do with me. And eventually Taiwan came up and it was like, yes, we'll send him to a place because there were no, no language training in those days. So we'll send him to a place where he can't speak a word of the language. The, the culture is completely juxtaposed to our own. And basically just let him flounder around there for a while and he can't do any damage. And that was how was that I landed up. Was that your first up. job? That was my first posting. I landed up in Taiwan. And uh, unfortunately, it went very, very well. And uh, we, as I say, in the old days, we, we weren't very PC. So um, actually not very controlled at all. Um, to give you two examples, um, our foreign minister at that time, despite representing apartheid South Africa and everything else, he had a massive, massively developed sense of humor. So on April Fool's Day, um, he basically sent out a message around the world to say that because South Africa is so big, we're now going to have two different time zones. So on the western side of South Africa, which is Cape Town, um, and where the, the, the sort of legislative uh, head was at that time, it'll be one time zone. And Pretoria and the rest of the country on the right-hand side we'll will be another, another time zone. Oh my God. He sent it out officially, and he said, change your watches, time, everything Everybody responded in every single embassy and consulate general around the world took it seriously until about three days later, we had to send out another message. And it was basically, are you people absolutely stupid? Did you not see that it was April Fool's Day? <laughs> he said, I'll tolerate eight hours of stupidity, but not three days of stupidity. Now, get it right. It was just a joke. Oh. So with that in mind, I'm sitting in Taiwan. And I get this phone call from Colin Patterson, I think his name was, who was head of the Foreign Service Personnel Committee. And he said, Mr. Dieb, you've, um, you've done a very good job in uh, Thailand, Taiwan, and we've now decided to cross-post you to our new um, mission in Beijing. And you have 17 days to get back to South Africa, uh, pack everything up, and get to Beijing. 17 days? Literally, 17 days. So... I looked at this and I, I thought it was one of these jokes. So I, I picked, literally answered the telephone and I said, look, there was a really good joke. Ha, ha, ha. But you didn't catch me and put the phone down because <laughs> I thought it was one of the jackasses at our, our head office who was trying to play a joke. Well, the but phone immediately me. rang again. I answered and he said, this is Mr. Patterson. And if you put the telephone down, my boy, you will not have a career in the Foreign Service ever again. <laughs> and of course, at which point her heart stopped. Uh, so, okay, yes, Mr. Patterson, sorry. And literally two weeks later, two and a half weeks later, I was sitting in Beijing. And we opened up the representative office there in, in 92. Um, we, we had to use the um, United Nations registration plates because we were regarded as an informal representative office. So it was called the South African Center for Chinese Studies because we still recognized uh, Taiwan, uh, uh, Taiwan at that stage. 
And uh, so I'll never forget the registration number was 0303. Um, and so we drove around as if we were part of the UN. But ironically, we were the first group that was allowed to stay outside of the diplomatic compounds. So I had a swanky apartment at the China World uh, apartment complex, which in those days, believe me, was swanky because there was just no <laughs> private accommodation on that level. And uh, all the other diplomats were really set out and said, oh, we recognize China. We go through this whole process. You guys don't recognize them and you get to stay in the China world and have all these other benefits. <laughs> Did you strange. like China when you first went there then? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, uh, people have very romantic ideas about China back then. All the hutongs were still there. Um, you know, there were bicycles everywhere. It was a totally different place. I mean, all the the expatriates conglomerated around the um, either the Lido Hotel or the Mexican Wave Restaurant uh, and Bar. Um, it was fantastic fun. But no, I, I arrived um, – again, I was sent there on purpose, um, mm. you know, to so just put this in serious context. Uh, again, they really wanted to try and isolate me. So the um, the, 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 the pseudo-ambassador that we had there was a chap called Leslie Labaskachny. Um, called himself uh, – my name is Les uh, – what, what was it? Um, uh, Labashane, as in champagne. <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, he was the most Afrikaner chap around, so it sounded even more funny. But um, I was put there where everybody was um, married couples. They were all much older than I was. And I was the only single person to arrive. We were staying at the Kempinski Hotel as an informal office. The the airport road wasn't even built yet. So in those days, we used to have to travel on the old dirt road on that that ran along the side through through the villages. And I arrived in the middle of winter. Um, you know, traveling along this tiny dirt road at five kilometers an hour, going through all the potholes and what have you, arrived at the hotel, nobody could speak English, nothing at all. And I I just sat in my, my room the first night, looked around and thought, damn it, this is not the most ideal situation <laughs> at all. Oh. But I grew to to enjoy it. I mean, the, the privileges we had in those days were quite phenomenal. Um, again, the South African office, because it was informal, we had to deal directly with our political counterparts in the Chinese foreign ministry. And lo and behold, Chen Chi Chen was actually head of the African foreign ministry at that stage. So he went on to become foreign minister. Um, we had incredibly close personal contacts with them. All the other dipl uh, 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 diplomatic officers were really interested in us, so we had a, a profile that was much higher than, than the size of the country. Yeah. How did you end up in Hong Kong then? Okay, so this this was a um, very, very interesting story. Um, ju just tell me how time goes because I, I, I've got a thousand of these different stories. <laughs> well, that's what backstories are. <laughs> uh, when I was in Beijing um, – uh, I mentioned the 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 uh, pseudo ambassador was was a pretty conservative Afrikaner, so we clashed really really strongly. Um, it didn't get on well at all. After about two years in the position, I think he was ready to send me back uh, to South Africa and just say, "Look, I can't deal with this chap." Literally, I mean, it was that that close. Uh, and I'll wow. tell you how I found out later. But um, uh, this uh, black woman arrived. On a orientation tour in 1994. And I remember Mandela got released in 94. So this sort of all dovetailed together. And nobody really knew who this black woman was. I mean, she was only two years older than I was. So it wasn't that she was this old granny or something. But somebody who was relatively young, um, very well-spoken, European-educated, um, and absolutely superwoman. 
So I was completely um, separated from her because they knew that I was very sort of liberally minded. They didn't want to put the two liberals together, so we were just separated until her final farewell dinner. Um, and we were sitting around the, the, the dinner table. And the way it works is um, the, the two most senior people sit on either end of the table, uh, sort of protocol correct, and the most juniors are in the middle. So obviously I was dead in the center. So this lady, whose name was Tutukile Mazabuko, um, at sort of one point said, look, I'm really interested to hear your views. Can we go around the table? And she said, I'd like to start with you, pointed at me. And I said, well, um, I think, and started launching in, at which point Mr. Les Labashain looked at me and said, Greg, I'd like you to shut up. I told you none of you people will talk. You will talk through me. I will give the full briefing to Mrs. Mazabuko. And at which point she looked at him. And she said, Les, actually, I'd like you to shut up. And I really, I asked him for a reason, and I'd like to hear from him. And I think he looked at her, and we didn't know who she was, but for the first time, I'll give him credit, at that moment, he read the situation correct and realized, actually, she may be a lot more important than what we think she is. And he did shut up, and I spoke. And that was the end of it. No no great story otherwise, except the following morning, when we were lining up to say goodbye to her, as she shook hands with me, she just leant over and she said, he's going to give you lots of trouble, but just know he can't do anything about it. And she walked on. And that was it. I didn't see her for two years until I arrived in South Africa. She became the director general, the head of our foreign ministry. Wow. And that was her worldwide training session. I landed in South Africa, went into the office at 8 in the morning, and at about 8.15, I got summoned to the CG, uh, to the director general's office. And I thought, oh, God, I've only been here 15 minutes. I couldn't have done anything wrong yet. <laughs> and I walked in and she said, look, Greg, every single person is expecting me to appoint a black female in my office as my personal assistant. And she said, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to prove it to everyone that things are different under my, my rule and I'm going to have a white male. And if I'm going to have a white male, I want you. Wow. So you have 24 hours to decide. You're going to work incredibly hard. You're literally going to shadow me wherever I go and do everything I do. But if you do that, I promise you it'll be really rewarding. And I looked at her. I said, look, I don't need 24 hours. I'm coming. So yeah. she said, well, pack your things up. And by 8.30, I was in the office next to her. And that started probably my most interesting, incredible two years. Um which I spent with her literally when she was out of town. She let me do everything um, as if I was her. Uh, great experience for a young person. I mean, I was really, really young at that point and got this this huge ability. I got to meet Mandela through her. Um, her husband was one of Mandela's closest confidants, uh, Zola Squia. Uh He's currently, I think, actually still ambassador for South Africa in the UK. Uh, she became eventually ambassador in France. Um, fantastic people, really, really brilliant. And that left me with a most brilliant taste in my mouth um, of what the country is all about. Uh, what the country could be all about. Well, before I let you go, Greg, I, I know I said last uh, question, but why did you then decide to uh, become a Chinese nationalist? Ah, okay. That's, uh, oh, nationalist or national? National, <laughs> national. Well, maybe both. It's yeah. uh, um Look, I, I, I think nationality is something that's incredibly important and very, very underrated by people. 
Um, I totally agree with the Chinese system whereby if you want to become a Chinese national, you have to give up all your other passports and all your other nationalities and only take on Chinese nationality. I think this is one of the most brilliant ideas around um, because our, our biggest issue that we have in the world at the moment is too many people arriving in places, um, not permanent residents, just doing a job. That's great. That, that's, that's economic migration and is very good for economies. Um, but when people arrive in a country, retain their own nationality, their own passports, their own culture, but they just simply are like a parasite sucking off that home, home country, um, it causes huge uh, social instability. And I think it's massively unhealthy. And, and really and truly, I stress this, a lot of the problems we have in the world are because of this. Um, and, you know, one of the, the greatest speeches I ever heard was, was Howard in Australia, who was always regarded as a conservative and a person who, um, you know, sort of wasn't very refugee-friendly and immigrant-friendly. And that's one of the top 100 speeches I've ever heard where he said, we are a nation of immigrants. Everybody is welcome here. Um, we, we love any nationality to come in. But when you come through the doors of Australia, you wa must want to be Australian. You must understand this is who we are as Australians. And basically, these are laws, our culture and otherwise. Subscribe to that and we will welcome you. Don't subscribe to that and don't come. And people said, oh, that's incredibly racist and intolerant. And I said, no, it's brilliant. That's exactly what China does. And I'm very proud to be able to subscribe to our culture, to have my kids educated here in a local way. It's absolutely awesome. And it's the best place in the world, quite frankly. So, yeah, I love it. Uh, and I'll never, ever leave. Yay! <laughs> and I look forward to having more of your backstories. We could have had four programs with your stories. Thanks very, very much, Marie. Such a pleasure chatting to you always. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much.